Greetings to all of you in Jesus' name. It's a real blessing to be here once again to uh, sit together with brothers and sisters and to discuss the scriptures and hear the words of the scriptures and to worship together. Uh, this morning I am preaching once again from the book of Colossians chapter 3. And you may turn with me there. Colossians chapter 3. I will read the first 10 verses of this chapter. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. In my last sermon, I preached, I looked at verses 1 and 2 and talked about how we are to called to exercise our mind to focus on things that are eternal, on the heavenly things. It says, set your affection on things that are above. That's the things that have lasting value and substance. We're to discipline our minds to think on the things that are important to God. Now today I'd like to think about another exercise that we are commanded to do, and that command is from verse 5 where it says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then it goes on and gives us a list of things, a specific list of things that we are to mortify. We're to put them to death. The, the Holman translation says, Put to death what belongs to your worldly nature. Now, we understand that even as Christians, even though we as Christians have been given the gift of the Spirit of God and we have, ex we have the new nature of Jesus within us, yet we must still deal with this corruptible flesh. We live in these bodies that uh, were born in sin and corruption. And until the final redemption at the resurrection uh, we're going to be in a battle. We're going to have to deal with a fleshly nature that is inclined to go against the nature of the Spirit of God. And so this battle between the flesh and the Spirit is something that is addressed many times in the New Testament. Jesus in John 3, when he talked to Nicodemus, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
So early in his ministry, Jesus kind of sets the stage between this battle of the flesh and the spirit. The battle, I should say, between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit is contrary. The flesh is against the spirit of God and the spirit of God is against the flesh that we live in. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 especially talk a lot about this battle, this war between the flesh and the, and the spirit. And Paul presents to us a choice in these chapters. He says we can yield ourselves to be the servants of sin or we can yield ourselves to be the servants of righteousness. We can be carnally minded with the result of death or we can be spiritually minded with the result of life and peace. That's the stage that is set in the New Testament. Galatians 6 says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. So it is very clear from the Scriptures that even after we are born again, even though the very nature of God has been implanted, transplanted into our hearts, we're still engaged in a battle between the flesh and, and the, uh, the old nature within us um, against the Spirit of God. We still must discipline our lives and put off, put to death, those things of the old nature, those things that have to do with the flesh, those works of the flesh and unrighteousness, those things that are mentioned in this text. And if you are like I am, sometimes it can almost be discouraging that this battle between the flesh and the spirit takes so much energy. It's, it's so real in my life. It would be so nice if we could just cruise along and naturally always do what the Spirit wants us to do. And yet I think we can be thankful for this battle that we need to fight. First of all, because it's evidence that the Spirit of God is dwelling within us. It's the person who's living after the flesh and is just doing whatever the flesh desires, living as he or she pleases, that's the person that is not going to experience any contest, any pushback. Um, there will not be any battle to be engaged in. Just live as you please. You do whatever you like. And so we can be thankful that as we engage in this battle, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is within us and, and we are engaged in a battle. And the other thing we need to remember in this battle is that the new nature of Christ, the Spirit of God within us, is overwhelmingly more powerful than the flesh. Greater is He that is in you, Jesus said, than he that is in the world. Paul said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the question is not whether or not the Spirit or the flesh is more powerful, but the question is which one will you yield your life to? Who are you going to serve? Will you choose to let the Spirit control your life and your actions 
and be in control of the throne room of your heart? Or are you going to allow the flesh to sit on that throne and to dominate your thoughts and your actions? It's a choice that we need to make. Now, verse 5, it gives us this list of sins here that we are to mortify, things that we should put to death, Paul says, things that should never be named in the life of the follower of Jesus. And I'm just going to go down over this list a little bit and and make just, just talk a little bit about these things. What are these things? First of all, Paul mentions fornication. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, he says. That's the first one. Fornication is sexual intimacy between a man and a woman who are not married. I think we all, most of us understand that. And the world has normalized this sinful activity to the point where people do it almost without giving it a thought in the day that we live in. But this activity is a sin in the eyes of God. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says fornicators, they're listed uh, among those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are engaged in fornication, it says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, hearing to the Colossians and to us, mortify the deeds of the body, put them to death, and fornication is the one, one of those things that we as children of God must put to death. It's not to be named among us. We understand that sexual intimacy between a man and a woman is a gift of God. And when it's expressed by God's design through marriage, in the context of marriage, it's a beautiful thing. Outside of God's design, it will keep you out of His kingdom. It will bar you from His presence. The second one that is mentioned here is uncleanness. This word is used a number of times in the New Testament. It simply means impurity. And once again, it's referring to sexual, to moral purity, to, to keeping the mind and the body and the heart clean and pure from sexual immorality, uncleanness, impurity of any kind. We're commanded to put those things off, according to Colossians here. We're, we're commanded to put them to death in our lives. And then we have the phrase inordinate affection. Inordinate is a word that, that we don't use very often. It, it means um, something that is within, is not within proper limits. It, it has to do with being excessive or unrestrained. The Greek word is pathos, and it's closely connected to passion or to lust. As physical beings, we do have passions, we have desires that are right and good when they are contained within the proper limits. The human desires for food and for rest or friendship or affirmation, uh, those desires are good desires. They're right desires when they are kept within the boundaries that God has given to us. But when our passions go outside of God's boundaries, then they become inordinate, inordinate. They, they, are, they become wrongful desires. A desire that is right and good turns into lust and turns into a wrong desire. Paul says we are to mortify all 
inordinate affections, all lust, any desire that is excessive and outside of God's boundaries and design. And the next one we have is this phrase, evil concupiscence, another word that we hardly ever use. And it also has the idea of longing or desire, and especially for that which is forbidden. Probably a word that would be more familiar to us is comes from this same root word is the word concubine. Um, and one definition of a concubine is simply a woman who is used to satisfy the wrong lustful desires of a man. Um, Strong's definition for the word concupiscence is to set the heart upon, to long for, to crave or lust after. Paul says evil concupiscence is something, evil desires, longing for things that are forbidden. We're to mortify that. We're to put that to death in our lives. It's not to be part of us as Christians, as the people of God. And then finally, in verse 5, he says we are to put off covetousness, which is idolatry. And according to Strong's, covetousness is greed, it's desiring more, it's eagerness for gain, and, and once again falls under this category of wrong desire and lust, hankering after things that do not satisfy, things that have no eternal lasting value. I think it's also noteworthy that Paul adds here, which is idolatry. He adds that little phrase, covetousness, which is idolatry. The Greek word for idolatry literally means image worship. That's what it means. And a simple definition for idolatry is worshiping the creation rather than the creator. It's worshiping something that is an image of the creator rather than worshiping the creator God himself. Um, and I think that is why this is a key phrase to the message Paul is giving in these verses. Remember the context here in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, Seek those things which are above. If you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things that are above. And idolatry is setting our affection on things of creation, the things of the earth, rather than on the creator and things that are above. God wants our affections and our desires set on him and on the things that are important to him, the, the eternal things that are of lasting value. And I think it's... Uh, you know, it's very obvious here that in this list of things that we are commanded to mortify this theme of evil desires, of, of uh, lust, lusting for things that we shouldn't be lusting for. It comes through again and again. We could almost accuse Paul of being redundant because he, he basically says the, the same thing in three different ways. The, those last three Things that he asks us to mortify, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. They're all very closely connected. They all have to do with uh, lusting after things that we shouldn't be lusting after as children of God. All have to do with wrong desires. And so I think a, a summary of the message that Paul wants us to get here is that as children of God, we must mortify the sins of the old nature. They must put to death. 
We as children of God must put to death any desire or affection that robs God of what rightfully belongs to him. He wants our affection and our desires set upon him. And when we choose to give ourselves to unrestrained, excessive, inordinate desires, we're choosing the creation over the creator. We are trading something of intrinsic worth for something intrinsically worthless. That is idolatry, and it does not sit well with God. He is a jealous God. He wants your heart, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind devoted completely to him. That was his desire even back in the old covenant for Israel. He said, um, you know, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's straight out of the law. And it's also his desire for the people of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to think of two reasons that that are given here in Colossians of why God's people must mortify the works of the flesh. Um, I'd like to draw your mind to a very familiar verse of song that we sing, um, the words of Rock of Ages. The first verse says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Now those are the original lyrics of that song. If you turn to that song in the hymns of the church, it's not quite the same. It says, um, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, be of sin the double cure, uh, now, I, I should have written that down. Save me from its guilt and power is what it is. Instead of uh, save from wrath and make me pure, it is written save me from its guilt and power. So somewhere along the line, uh, that little phrase got edited and changed, and um, nobody knows for sure why it got changed. It happened a while back. Um, some people think it was... It was the Methodist to uh, reflect a little bit more of John Wesley's theology and not so much Calvinism because uh, Augustus' top lady wrote this song in 1776. He was a Calvinist, and, and some of that comes through in this song, although it is very theologically right. Um, so I actually like the original version of where it says, sin um, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Uh, I think it just makes it very much clearer what, what the author of the song is, is intending by the double cure of the blood of Jesus Christ. The double cure is saving us from the wrath of God and also making us pure and clean before him. It's not only saving us from the wrath of God, it's also cleansing our lives so that we're living in power over sin. And I brought this into the sermon because um, I, I see those very two reasons for the, our call to put to death the works of the flesh 
the things of the sinful nature in our lives given right here in Colossians chapter 2. And those are given in, in verses 3. I'm sorry, verse 4 and verse 6. Verse 4 says, When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And we understand that this verse is speaking of Jesus coming back to receive his bride, his bride who will be a spotless, pure virgin. She will be clothed with fine linen, which is the righteousness of God, the book of Revelation tells us. And so this concept of Jesus coming for a bride that is pure, we're going to appear with him. That's the concept of Jesus' blood cleansing us from sin, making us pure, washing us clean. But then we also have the idea, the motivation of the wrath of God. In verse 6 it says, For which sake, which things sake, it's talk, it's referring back to verse 5, these things that, that we are to put off, these things that we are to put to death in our lives. It says we're to put them off because if these things are a part of your life, the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. If you're going to decide that these things can be a part of my life and I can still call myself a child of God, it says the wrath of God is going to come upon your life. And so we have this, this motivation of God's wrath of being saved from the wrath of God. That's why we put off these things. Now it's easier for, it's easy for us to think here that the children of disobedience, he uses a phrase here in chapter, in verse six, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. And I, I was asking myself the question, who are the children of disobedience? Is Paul referring to those who are living in sin and who have never came under the blood of Jesus and who are um, just freely indulging themselves in living the way that they want to and willingly living in sin. I think it's easier for, for us to dismiss that, that phrase to, to being referring to those people. But I think it's also important for us to remember that if we as children of God, saints, people who have been born again and washed in the blood of Jesus, if we allow these things to enter into our lives and we begin to indulge in them, we are very quickly going to become the children of disobedience and find ourselves under the wrath of God. In fact, I wonder if that's not what Paul was referring to here, is, is not uh, referring more to those who have experienced the new birth and have professed the name of Jesus and who are following him and yet, or say they are following him, and yet they fall back into these sins of the flesh, these things that shouldn't be named among us. They will again find themselves under the wrath of God. I'd like to think a little bit um, for the rest of this sermon about these two reasons, these two motivations, maybe we could call them, for for um, mortifying the deeds of the flesh, that of the wrath of God. I'm going to talk about that first, and then also the the 
the blood of Jesus cleansing us and making us pure and him coming to receive a bride that is pure and spotless. We don't talk about the wrath of God very much. Exodus chapter 32 gives us a glimpse of the wrath of God when Moses went up into the mountain. God had called him up there to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments and God was instructing Moses and writing down the law and he was up there for a number of days, 40 days. And uh, finally he, he went back down to the people and as he was coming down, he heard this strange noise and he found the people um, dancing naked around this golden calf that Aaron had made for them. And uh, God was very, very, very upset. The Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Those were God's words to Moses when Moses came down off the mount and the, and they saw what the children of Israel were doing. He said, let my wrath wax hot against them that I may consume them. Does God have the right to be wrathful towards his people? He absolutely does. They are his creation. He is God. He has established truth and right, and when his people refuse to walk in the truth that has been given to them, he has the right to judge them. He has the right to pour out his wrath upon them. And it was only because of the intercession of Moses that God didn't act on that wrath. And he once again went back to his mercy and to his love as he so often does, which we can be thankful for. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we have the words of King Josiah. King Josiah was the king who became king as a boy, a young boy of eight years old, and he wanted to do what was right. After all of many of his, uh, the kings before him had uh, followed after that which is evil and done evil in the sight of God and corrupted the nation of Israel, King Josiah wanted to do what was right. And after the high priest, I believe it was Hilkiah, had found the book of the law which had long been forgotten. He found it somewhere in the temple and he brought it to Josiah and they read, he had the book read. These were his words after they had read that book. Go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that which is written concerning us. When Josiah read the words of the law, he came to the right understanding that God's wrath was kindled against their nation because they had no longer been following his words, the words of the law. When God's laws and commands are willingly ignored and refused, it kindles, it, it ignites his wrath. It, it sparks something inside of him. 
And it's not an unjust wrath. It's a wrath that is just and right. As parents, we have a lot of grace for our children when they make mistakes, when they unknowingly do things they shouldn't. I was thinking about, as I was thinking about this, I remembered an, uh, an instance when one of my daughters came in to the house and you know, cheerfully and delightfully told me that she had um, discovered that she can write on the side of the van with a piece of metal and she scratched out her name on on our vehicle and she showed it to me and it was, you know, she was so happy about it, so delighted and, you know, I, I couldn't punish her for that. She didn't, I had never told her she shouldn't do that. That was, um, as much as I didn't like it, it, it was just, you know, I had a lot of grace for that. But, you know, when when my children deliberately and willingly go against what I have specifically and clearly told them not to do, it ignites something within me, too. You know, I don't know if it's something, and probably most times it doesn't ignite something that is right. And we as parents probably shouldn't compare ourselves to God, and we certainly don't have the right to anger and wrath like God does. But it helps me to understand the way God feels when his people refuse to do what they know is right. It helps me to understand God's wrath toward the disobedient. It also helps me to realize that I can teach my children, I can help my children understand the wrath of God by teaching them that there are consequences for disobedience. That you can't just do purposefully and willingly what you know you're not allowed to do. You know, we, we can give our children a picture of the wrath of God, a right and good picture of that wrath if we, if we deal with those things in a right and good way. Anyway, that, that was, I guess, kind of a bunny trill, but I, I'm, I'm thinking of the wrath of God. Throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is often displayed to Israel toward rebel, rebellious Israel. The, the prophets warn them again and again and again, over and over, um, you know, repent and turn back to doing what, what you, you're willingly going against what you know is right. Repent or God's judgment is going to fall upon you. And again and again, the wrath of God would come because they refused to repent and he would judge them, usually through another nation. And they, they had this, this cycle that they would go through and it's, it's almost sad in the history of Israel. But what about the New Testament? Is the wrath of God only a part of the Old Covenant? Is, is, it, is it sort of a quaint thing that has been forgotten now that we live in the New Testament of grace and mercy? Well, some New Testament scriptures. John chapter 3, verse 36. Again, the words of Jesus he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Jesus is the only separation between life and mercy and grace and the wrath of God. There is no other way that we can get out escape from the wrath of God 
but through the life of Jesus Christ. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And that that's, that's almost an awful thought to think that there are millions of people who are refusing the Son of God and that they are living with the wrath of God abiding on them should motivate us to get out and to present Jesus and the life that he brings. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Again, this, this idea comes through in these scriptures again and again. God's wrath is upon those who hold the truth, who know the truth, but they refuse to obey it. Now, it does seem like God's wrath is not as pronounced, not as vividly displayed in our day as it was many times in Israel. But we should not be deceived into thinking that God has changed and that now he is only a God of mercy, all mercy and all love. Yes, God is surely a God of love and mercy And we can be ever thankful for that. But the scriptures also show us clearly that God is a God of wrath. And to those who refuse to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to those who refuse to act on the truth that has been given to them, God's wrath is upon them. And the scriptures also give us the sense that God is holding back his wrath. He's keeping it in store for that day of judgment, that final day. And that day, when time is over, God's wrath is going to be unleashed without mixture. It's going to be undiluted fury and judgment upon all those who knew the truth but refused it. All those who refused the power of Christ are not willing to mortify the works of the flesh. The scriptures tell us in Hebrews, I think it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It says they're going to call on the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to try to get away from the wrath of God, but they will not be able to escape. So let's not forget that God is a God of wrath. And let's let us let let us motivate us to do what we know is right and to put to death, to mortify the deeds of the flesh should be a motivation for us. And I'm glad it's not our only motivation, but it is a motivation for us. But we also have the motivation that Jesus has the power to cleanse us and make us pure and make us clean. And he is coming for a pure bride. And I'd like to think about that a little bit. First John chapter three, we have those familiar words. Beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he, even as Jesus is pure. 
Jesus is the pure, spotless bridegroom. He never committed a sin. There was never one blight of sin on Jesus' life, and he is coming back as that pure, spotless bridegroom. He is also coming back to receive a pure, spotless bride, a bride that has been made pure through his righteousness, a bride that consists of millions of people who have taken personal responsibility individually to keep their lives pure from sin. It says here in 1 John, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. Yes, it, it is through the power of the new life of Christ, and yet we bear the responsibility to mortify the deeds of the flesh, to put them to death in our lives. We're not only motivated to mortify the flesh so that we can escape the wrath of God, but also because we can anticipate being part of that spotless bride that will appear with Christ at the last day when he returns. It says here in verse 3 or verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. If that is our hope, if that's our expectation, then verse 5 must also be true in our lives. We must mortify the members which are upon the earth, those things that are mentioned there. That is, when, when in that last day, when Jesus comes to receive his perfect bride, his spotless bride, that is when the church will experience the consummation of her relationship with Jesus. That is when our redemption will be finished in perfection, in fullness. That is when we will sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We do not want to miss that event. You do not want to miss that event. If you miss that, you have missed everything that life is all about. You have lived your life in vain. So let us, let's let this hope of the appearing, let's let the hope of us appearing with Christ be a personal motivation to be free from the blight of sin. Let this hope empower you to mortify the flesh, to put off the old man, and to live out the living power of the Spirit of God. James says in chapter 1, I believe it is, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now I, I've wondered already what James meant by Pure religion, what, what, what does that mean exactly? Um, but I believe that, that we could paraphrase that, or in my own words I could say that the essence of being a Christian is to visit the fatherless and their, uh, the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. One of the things, when you boil down Christianity to what it really is, is that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. We, bear, we take personal responsibility to live lives that are pure and free from sin, clean. And yes, we do sin, and we understand the blood of Jesus is cleansing us, and, and it's, 
It's only through the blood of Jesus. I, I don't want to, uh, to um, omit that fact. Yet we bear re responsibility to live by the power of what Jesus has done in our lives. And we need to be responsible for that. We have the hope of being part of that pure, clean bride when Christ returns. I'm going to close by reading um, Revelations chapter 19. I wanted to read this because it so vividly portrays both of these thoughts, the idea of Jesus coming for his bride that is pure and clean, and then also the wrath of God resting on those who will not be part of that bride. Revelation chapter 19. I'm just going to read this and then we're going to pray. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again, they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that of the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the, the, winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God." And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Let's kneel for prayer.